Uh, the reading this morning on which the teaching is based is Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 22 to 23. Now, in a minute, when I start reading, I'm actually going to start reading with verse 18, which overlaps a little bit with the text that we studied a couple of weeks ago. And the reason why I'm going to do that is because in this portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's talking about what a life filled with the Spirit looks like. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw the examples that he, that, he, that, he gave, that he gives. What does a Spirit-filled life looks like? Well, he says this is, this is the evidence that you should look for. He said uh, you, you would be praising and worshiping God. Right? Your, your life is singing to one another and to God of God's goodness. And evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life is also that you're filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. And that would be an evidence. And then in verse 21, the third thing he says, the third evidence of, uh, of the Holy Spirit at work in your life is that you're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then from verse 22 forward through the middle of chapter 6, he gives three specific applications for what it looks like in different relationships here in this world of what that looks like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This week, we're going to be looking at the, the first of those relationships, the relationship between a husband and wife. We're going to be looking at marriage. So if you're able, let me ask you to stand as I read this. Like I said, I'm going to start with verse 18. When I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. All right, so Ephesians 5, this is verse 18. This is not going to be on the screen. This is our running start. You ready? And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's our setup. All right, now here's the text. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> now, I have to admit that I am not a, um, I'm not a personal expert and don't have a lot of personal experience with this literary genre. Uh, but according to the Romance Writers of America... Right? That is the very large trade association that, um, that, that gathers together about 10,000 romance novel writers and all the associated industry professionals. Right? According to the RWA, there are two basic elements that comprise every romance novel. 
right? The first would not shock you. It is that there must be a central love story. There has to be some sort of, of conflict, a main plot which centers around individuals falling in love and then struggling to make that relationship work. There needs to be a, there needs to be a love story that takes place. Okay, well, that's kind of definitional. You say, okay, what's the big deal? Why do we need to define that? Now, the second element, though, that they said, which I found most interesting, is that for a romance novel to be a classic romance novel, there must be, at the end, an emotionally satisfying and optimistic ending. Those are their words. An emotionally satisfying and optimistic ending. In other words, in a romance novel, it all works out in the end. You get the happy ending, and everyone goes away happily ever after. Now, I say that as a backdrop because there are basically two places two sort of classic locations to go in the New Testament when we talk about marriage and sexuality in Paul's letters. Two places that people go. The first is 1 Corinthians, usually, especially chapter 6 and chapter 7. And then they go to Ephesians 5. Now, we studied in some detail last year 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 does is it deals specifically with the negative side of things immorality and conflict and brokenness and all those things that have gone wrong with marriage and sexuality. And talking about those things is very necessary in today's world because we need to address a lot of the brokenness and a lot of the things that have gone wrong with the way God designed His world to work. But, as I've said before, I think sometimes Christians can tend to talk only about the negative side to the point where it begins to sound as if we're just against things. And as a result, it can seem as if we're kind of apologizing for the Christian view of marriage as if it's sort of a concession. In other words, we communicate subtly to our culture and even to our kids, perhaps, when we talk about marriage and we talk about it from a Christian perspective, we say, well, look, I mean, and we, and we, and we won't use these words, but this is what we'll say. We say, okay, I mean, it may not be, it may not be fun, uh, we may not enjoy it, but it's what God said you need to do. And after all, at the end of the day, I mean, it might be boring, but suck it up because at least you get eternal life. Right? That's kind of how sometimes it seems as if we're talking about it. Right? Forget about the emotionally satisfying and optimistic ending. Right? Just deal with it. God told you what to do, and so like, at least deal with it. At least, you get, at least you get eternal life out of it. Right? Which is why we need Ephesians chapter 5. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul puts... Christian marriage into its proper context, into its bigger story. Did you hear what we just read? Right? Marriage is a signpost that points to the central love story in all of human history with an ending that is so satisfying that this story could only have been written by the author of the entire universe. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to tell the story. And it's a story that is told in three acts. The first act, act number one, the design of the maker. Act number two, the destruction of the majesty. Act number three, the discovery of the mystery. Design of the maker, destruction of the majesty, discovery of the maker, uh, discovery of the mystery. I want you to notice the double alliteration there with the D's and the M's. I worked really hard on that. First, act number one, the design of the maker. Here's what I, here's what I mean by that. I mean that marriage was not the idea of a couple of people sitting in a prehistoric cave by the fire one night. And they said, hey, you know what? Let's, let, let's do this. Let's do marriage. That might be good. Look at verse 31. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's Paul doing there? What's he, what's he doing? He's quoting Genesis 2.24. When God instituted marriage in the, in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning in creation. And incidentally, that is the place to go in the Old Testament when you're talking about marriage. In Matthew 19, when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders about divorce, where does he go? He goes and quotes Genesis 2.24. In 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is dealing with sexual immorality, where does he go? He quotes Genesis 2, verse 24. And here, when Paul's trying to define the purpose of marriage, where does he go? He quotes Genesis 2.24. Why? Because that's where the story starts. That's where the love story begins. Now step back for a minute. Back in Genesis 1 and 2. God is creating things. And always when God is creating things in Genesis 1 and 2, he reflects on what he's done and he calls it good. It says God saw what he had made and it was good. Over and over again it says that. But then in Genesis 2.18, God looks at something and for the very first time he says, that's not good. Now he doesn't mean that he had done something wrong. It just means that he wasn't done yet. Something wasn't yet complete. He wasn't finished. That's not good, he said. Now what wasn't good? He said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Why not? Why wasn't it good for the man to be alone? Well, because God had given him a job. He'd given him a job to to take care of the garden, to, to, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth. And what God knew was that man couldn't do that by himself. He needed a helper. He was alone. The other animals couldn't 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 do the task. So God created a woman. He created a woman out of the man so that he could have a helper that was suitable for him. Another person, equal in dignity, equal in essence, but different in function, who could help realize God's promise to put his glory on display throughout the earth. And then he established the foundational relationship by which this man and this woman were to relate to one another. Not the only relationship by which men and women relate to one another in the world, but the foundational relationship by which this man and this woman were to relate to each other. That was the relationship of marriage. And in Genesis it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, if this is true, then there's a few implications for the design of the maker. What do we need to know about marriage? Well, first, if it's instituted by God, then by definition, marriage is good. It's a good thing. It wasn't created after the rebellion of Adam and Eve. It's God's promise to build society and culture on marriage as a foundation, on a sure foundation. It's not a concession. It's not a concession to people who can't control their otherwise sinful desires. It's not a ball and chain that constitutes the unfortunate end to life and fun and freedom. It's a good thing. And if God gives it to you, you should embrace it. You should celebrate it. You should surround yourself with people who do the same. Secondly, second implication, if if this is the design of the maker, if marriage is instituted by God, then what it means is, by definition, again, he's the one who gets to define it and he's the one who gets to regulate it because he created it. If we made it up, then we would have every right to just sort of say, you know what, this isn't working, let's change this, tweak this. But we didn't make it up. It's not our design, it's the design of the maker. Now, that's, that's, that's what that means. God sets the parameters because he knows how we're designed to work and he knows how marriage is designed to work. Right? And if you use it the wrong way, you're going to break it. Right? Think about it this way. Right? If I take Dr. Pepper, because Dr. Pepper is supposed to have a lot of energy in it, and I pour it in my gas tank, 
the car's not going to work. The car's going to break because I've confused caffeine with octane. They're two totally different things. If I use something that was intended for a different purpose, for its wrong purpose, it's not going to work. It's going to break the thing. And that's what we've done with marriage. God gives us marriage. He defines its terms because He wants it to work. He designed it as a foundational building block to accomplish His mission. Now, there's more that we can say about the design, but for now, that's point number one. It is a relationship created by God to be the foundational basis for human society meant to achieve His mission in the world. That's the design of the maker, act number one. Now, act number two in the great big love story, here's where the conflict comes in, the destruction of the majesty. It was meant and designed to be something majestic, to be something beautiful, but it's been destroyed. And I'll spend less time here because you can go back and you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 if you want later and you can get all the negative, but we do have to spend some time here because this is an important part of the story. Marriage was established by God with majestic intentions, but what have we done with it? We've taken that design, that good, original, perfect design, and we've treated it as something that we have the right to to take or to leave, to redefine, to use for our ends, to just cast aside if we want to, depending on what feels best for us at the moment. And we see the result evident all around us. It's the conflict. It's the brokenness. it's, It's the pain that many of us feel personally. And we need to lovingly acknowledge that. This is not just a a theological exercise that we're kind of going through here. As if we kind of glibly just say the uh, the destruction of the majesty. Oh yeah, it's a theological thing. No, this is a personal thing. I know this. I know that for many of you, you know the pain associated with God's design not working the way that it's supposed to work. The pain of divorce, the scars of sexual brokenness, the struggle of ongoing addictions in your life, there's a very real pain associated with that. In some cases, due to your own sin, perhaps. In other cases, due to the sin of others. In almost all cases, a combination of everything all mixed together. And it all sources right back to what happened in Genesis 3. Again, do like Paul, do like Jesus. Go back to Genesis 2 and 3, and you see it. Right after the design of the maker is laid out, right after the first start, a married couple starts on their, on their way, they start going their own way. They start thinking they'd rather be God, that they'd rather be their own designer, do it in their own way and in their own strength and for their own glory. And through their rebellion comes all of the relational conflict, all of the shame, all the brokenness in marriage. And as a result, it's not just the high-profile ways where the majesty of marriage is destroyed. It's in the little stuff. It's in the day-to-day stuff. Let me build on something I said a minute ago. I said, I said marriage is a good thing. Now, because of some of the high-profile ways in which our culture has thrown off the design of the maker, there are many in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and our schools who might disagree with that statement if I were to say marriage is a good thing. There are some in our world who would say, no, it's not good. But for the most part, that's probably not most of you. It might be some of you, but it's probably not most of you. Most of you in this room are probably not willing to say, or at least say out loud, that marriage in general is a bad thing. You'd say, no, it's good. It's a good thing. But would you say this? How many of you honestly would say that marriage is great? It's a great thing. I'm not talking about perfect, but I'm talking about, if I were to ask, if I were to ask those of you who are married, how many of you would say, yeah, it's not perfect, but, but I love being married. I, one of the things I love, I love doing premarital counseling. And I was talking to, uh, 
to a young couple who is going to be married soon. You may know them. And one of the pieces of advice that Stacy and I always tell young couples preparing for marriage is surround yourselves with people who will, for sure, speak, of the, speak truthfully about the effort involved in, in marriage, but people who will also, without hesitation, say, I love being married. Surround yourself with people like that. Can you, can you say that? Many of us can't. Because, not at, not at the high level, but at the boots of the ground level, the majesty has been destroyed. Now, that's not something, if you can't say that, that's not something that, that I want you to kind of take in shame or whatever, but I want you to see that as the illustration of what we're talking about here. Yeah, the majesty is destroyed. There's something broken inside all of us. Sin has ruined what God has designed. Borrowing an illustration from the counselor, author, Winston Smith, it's similar, this 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 boots-on-the-ground struggle with marriage not always being great. It's similar to how, to, how I learned, to how I play the piano. See, when I was a kid, I took lessons for almost five years. I don't remember much. But I do remember that when you start learning to play the piano, you start by finding middle C. Middle C on the piano. Has anyone taken piano lessons? Right? You take piano lessons, they teach you to find middle C. Now, they call it middle C for two reasons, I learned. One, because it is the note C. Two, because it is in the middle. So it's easy. You start there. And that is essentially kind of where I ended. Well, not exactly. I learned probably, I, I learned some songs off of middle C in the 10 or 15 keys on the either side of, miss, uh, of middle C. Simple melodies, right? It wasn't exactly scales, but it was far from Beethoven and Bach, right? Little songs in the 10 or 15 keys on either side of, of middle C. That's where I stopped. That's where I, I and which is why I never played beautiful music, because a piano does not have just 15 keys. A piano has 88. A piano is capable of incredibly more than the narrow range to which I limited it. And when you actually hear someone who can really play, you listen as they play across the whole range of all the keys. And when that happens, the piano gains a voice. It actually sings. It becomes majestic. Marriage is similar in this sense. You might be committed to God as the maker of marriage and to following His design at some high level, but you're far from the full capability, the full range that marriage offers because you play basically the same tune with the same 10 or 15 keys centered around middle C. I'm guilty of it too. Right? Ask my wife. Right? If you aren't careful, this is what can, this is what can happen. Right? You can begin to take your spouse for granted. You can, you can have your conversations become just more and more logistical rather than personal. Your interests and your hobbies can diverge. You can spend more time giving her the space she needs and less time pursuing and longing after her heart. That's what can happen. What I want us to see is not the shame of that, but the realization and the hope that comes from that there are more keys on the keyboard. That's what God has designed, which is why after the destruction of the majesty, act number three, we have the discovery of the mystery. This is really the primary subject of what we read in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 31, the quote again from Genesis 24. Let me read it again. This is what the first two points have been centered on. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. Now keep reading, verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Now this is where we have to spend a couple of minutes, because this is where the crux of it is. First, what's a mystery? What's it talking about? All right, Halloween in a couple weeks, right? So mysteries are kind of in, they're kind of hip. This is not, in the biblical usage of the term mystery, this is not some sort of spooky Scooby-Doo, Agatha Christie, Halloween kind of mystery. Something hidden that we'll never know. No, the Greek word mysterion here refers to a truth that requires revelation, but a truth that is intended to be revealed. A truth that, that needs to be revealed to us, but is. And in the specific way that Paul uses it here and elsewhere in Ephesians, it refers to the deep purposes of God that He reveals to us His plan to save a people from the consequences of their sin so that they might be eternally married to Him, that they might be in eternal relationship with Him. The revelation of that plan, that is the mystery that is being revealed. It refers to the gospel, to the declaration, to the unveiling of God's intention to rescue us. And in this verse, the way that it's phrased, it's not just a mysterion, it's a mega mysterion. It's a great mystery. It's a profound truth of the gospel being revealed to us by God. Now, what is that profound mystery? It's that, this is the profound mystery, it's that in the midst of our concerns, real concerns, about the destruction of the majesty that have happened in our own individual love stories, there is a greater love story going on nonetheless. You see it? The greater love story? It's a love story between Christ and His church. The profound revealed truth is that Jesus, by the means of His own sacrificial love, rescues, calls, perfects, and then marries His bride. Paul is summing it up here, but that is the mystery of the love story that is told in the Bible from beginning to end. Right? The Bible is, in that sense, it is the archetypal romance novel. It is, it, is, it is the model for all romance novels, the greatest love story that has ever been written, the struggle to restore the intimacy between God and His people, the majestic intimacy that Adam and Eve had but destroyed in the Garden of Eden. That struggle is the main plot line that goes throughout the entire Bible. God is the husband pursuing His bride. Throughout the Old Testament, Paul's not just, bringing the, he's not just bringing the metaphor in here. Throughout the entire Old Testament, marriage is repeatedly used as a picture of the covenantal relationship between God and His people. Now, that's profound. That's enough for a profound mystery in a lot of ways. But if you think about it, it's even more profound. When my brother, when my brother Dave preached at my wedding, he pointed it out. This is what he said. He said, did you know that in the greater love story... The bride doesn't look like the brides that you find in the bridal magazines. The bride doesn't start off all radiant and beautiful and all dressed in white. In the greater love story, the bride starts off in rags. The bride starts off filthy. Because what does Paul say about the bride? He says the bride is the church. And contrary to popular assumptions sometimes, but are very evident to anyone who looks or has spent any time in the church, the church is not made up of very holy people sometimes. The church is made up of sinners like you and like me. None of us meet God's majestic design standards. And as, but in the greater love story, see this is the kicker right here. 
even though that's how we appear before Him, in the greater love story, the groom loves us anyway. The groom pursues us anyway. That's what Jesus did. That's the profound mystery. And Christian marriage, our individual love stories to whom God has given it, is intended to illustrate that, to point to that. The lesser pointing to and deriving its strength from the greater. Now, incidentally, singles, don't feel left out in this. Because if God has not given you, at least for now, marriage, right? If you do not have for now, at least the lesser, you certainly do have ultimately, completely, and eternally the greater. If the lesser is designed as a signpost that points to the greater love story, points to the greater husband, to the perfect marriage, that is what the gospel of Jesus Christ guarantees you will have. And so while at this moment you may not have the lesser, you most certainly have the greater. Now understanding it that way, this lesser's love story as a pointer to the greater love story, puts a great deal of other things that Paul says here into into context. Like when he begins in verse 22 to define the attitudes and the responsibilities that are necessary for marriage to do its job to point to Christ in the church. See, if that then is the purpose of marriage, then it makes sense as to why different responsibilities and roles might be assigned, because there are different aspects, different parts of the play that, 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 are, to be, that, that are to be carried out, that are to be played in this, in this drama that point to different aspects of the greater love story. Now, I can't, go, I can't go any farther without acknowledging what many people feel is profanity in verse 22 and in verse 24. You all saw it. It's the S word. We don't use it in polite company. But it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. What does that mean? Well, we know what it doesn't mean. We know it doesn't mean that women are of any lesser value than men. Think of Jesus' relationship with the Father, the eternal Son of God, always now, is now, always was, is now, and will forever be as much God as God the Father. And yet, as a man, Jesus, in this life, who was still fully God, submitted himself to the will of the Father when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's exactly what he did. He said to the Father, not my, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Now that didn't in any instance and not for an instant make him any less equal in essence to the Father. Didn't make him any less, any less worthy of glory. It just meant that in that role, Jesus had a different part to play. Paul puts it in Philippians 2. Jesus was in the very nature God even as he willingly accepted his role in that instance as part of the redemptive story as a servant. The same is true for the wife. Equal in essence, but different at times in role and function. And when that's true, she's willingly able to accept in marriage her husband's care and leadership. Not as a silent partner, but as a true helper whose role in deferring to the loving leadership of her husband points people to the greater husband, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying and we could defend it further. We could go to other places in the creation account, other passages in the Bible where marriage is discussed. But it's stated clearly enough here, right? So, so here's the biblical statement. And yet, some of us still, even with the biblical statement in front of us, get uncomfortable about it, right? But that means then we're not so much uncomfortable with what the text actually says. It means that we're probably uncomfortable with how the text has been applied, Right? As it's been said, there are thousands of women who rail against this statement and there are thousands of men who have obviously given them just cause. 
You hear what that says? Right? There are thousands of women who rail against this statement and thousands of men who have obviously given them just cause. Which is why the responsibility then turns to the husband. Because if the signpost is going to work, then the husband needs to play his role as well. Learn, let's learn, turn to the husband. Look at this in greater perspective. Look at verses 25 to 27. Maybe this can help us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, it is very interesting to note, and I want you to see this, that the command to the husband here, which is the contra to the, the command to the, to, the, to the wife, the command of the wife is to submit to your husband, right? the command of the husband that is the contra to that is not to govern your wife, which would be the logical one. In the Greek world, that's exactly how ethics were done. This explanation of relationships between husband and wife, this was a common formula in the Greek ethical texts of the time. And the contra to submit was to govern, but not here. Not here. Here, the contra to submit is to love her. In our culture, where we throw around the word all the time, we might miss this because this is a radical departure because, from what would have been understood at the time. Paul transforms the ethical formula of the ancient Greeks by casting love instead of rule as the counterpart to submit. And that changes things a bit because Paul says that we are to love our wives like Christ loved the church. You see what he's doing here? He points us to the greater love story. The greater love story doesn't teach husbands how to rule, teaches husbands how to love. And how was that again? Wait, how did, how did Christ love the church? Hmm, he died for her. Eugene Hahn and Kirsten Davis were married in 2013 in Aurora, Colorado, which is a suburb just east of Denver. Exactly one year earlier to their wedding, after a long day at work for Eugene, he decided to take Kirsten on a, a date. The midnight showing of the new Batman movie with some friends. When they got to the theater, it was packed. The only place that they could find to sit together was in the second row close to the emergency exit at the front. It was through that door just moments later that a gunman would enter into the packed theater and begin firing into the crowd. Before Kirsten knew what was happening... Eugene, her boyfriend of two years, grabbed her from her seat, pushed her to the ground, and covered her body with his. He took two bullets for her, one in the hip and one in the knee, before they eventually managed to escape out the exit. Eugene still bears the scars, but he recovered. He proposed to his wife. And like I said, they married one year, of the day, one year from the day of that shooting. It's a remarkable love story for these two young Christians. Now, from that, let me ask you two rhetorical questions. First question, do you think that Eugene was being chauvinistic, condescending, boorish, and patriarchal when he shielded Kirsten's body with his? No. It's not a matter of worth or value. It's not even a matter of physical strength or size. It is because the husband is to love like Christ loved the church. That's what I want to teach 
my sons. You treat a woman like that. Second question. When Eugene proposed to Kirsten nine months later and promised to love her in a way that would be worthy of her respect, worthy of her loving submission, do you think that she was more or less likely to entrust herself to that leadership after what he had done for her? That's what I want to teach my daughter. You marry a man like that. Because that's a man pointing to Jesus. And just so I'm clear, I'm not just talking about the life-threatening moments when this happens, right? Hopefully none of us will have to experience something so dramatic. You've heard about the wife who says to her otherwise lazy husband, I know and I'm glad that you're willing to die for me, but in the meantime, while we're waiting for that moment, would you mind getting up and just drying the dishes? It's more than just a literal bullet. Paul is defining a majestic love that makes the mission of the husband doing everything that he can to ensure the emotional, physical, spiritual health and safety and well-being of his wife. The author, uh, Walter Trobish, wrote a book almost 60 years ago called I Loved a Girl. And this is what he wrote. He said, let me try to tell you what it really should mean if a fellow says to a girl, I love you. He says, this is what it should mean. It should mean you alone. You shall reign in my heart. I will give you everything. I will give everything for you. I will give up everything for you, myself as well as all that I possess. I will love you alone and I will work for you alone and I will wait for you. I want to guard you, protect you, and keep you from evil. I want to share all your thoughts, my heart and my body, all that I possess. See, when men love their wives with that as their goal and wives then respond with the corresponding respect, Marriage can be majestic. Now, as we end, I have to acknowledge, and I understand, this is not the detailed how-to about how to get back to that majesty, to see how this revealed mystery can actually happen in specific areas where brokenness lives and occurs in our daily lives. And if you know nothing but the brokenness of the of the, of, the, of the brokenness of this institution. I want you to know at the very least that there is true hope. And then I want you to talk to someone. Talk to me. Talk to one of our elders. Talk to a trusted friend who can come to us if you don't feel comfortable so that we can help you build a specific plan. But this is the blueprint. This is the, this is the love story. This is where we fit in. A design for marriage that's modeled on and that points to the profound mystery of a husband willing to die for an unworthy bride and then unite himself to her so that she becomes a part of his body. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this profound truth that points us to the gospel. Help us to see ourselves as the one who has been redeemed to see ourselves as part of this greater story in whatever part we are called to play. Be that husband, be that wife, be that married or single. Lord, help us to see that all of our lives should be pointing to this truth. And so we thank you for marriage. We pray that you would strengthen that in our culture. We pray that you would strengthen that in our church. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen that in our homes. In Jesus' name, amen.